Well, good morning for the final day. I wanted to make one correction and to strike one thing from the record. I mentioned on Tuesday that a Sister Armstrong was Lord George's nanny. She was actually Arthur Balfour's nanny. And quite an influential person, not only the nanny and nurse, but also a tutor as he was growing up. And that source is the fraternal visitor. I'm not completely clear which uh, publication that is, but that is the correct person, Sister Armstrong, for Arthur Balfour, Arthur James Balfour. A quick story that was that I was reminded of in listening to Brother David's fine words this morning is we had an older brother in our meeting, and Brother Brian Forbes will remember this. His name was Brother Ray Phillips. He was a very elderly gentleman, but an avid walker and hiker. And of course, you're familiar with the Red Rocks Amphitheater, where all the big, uh, it's a big outdoor venue where all the uh, bands go and will stop by when they're in Colorado. He was doing his normal hike around Morrison, which Red Rocks is in, and hiking up towards Red Rocks, and the Grateful Dead were in town. And so, uh, as all of them, uh, to all the people and fans follow the Grateful Dead and will camp out in the streets until the whole town of Morrison is just overrun for a four-day concert when the Grateful Dead were in town. Some of them were probably, probably sarcastically saying, oh, are you part of the Grateful Dead? And his response was, no, I'm part of the Grateful Living. <laughs> and he kept trucking up the mountain. Now, with that, we need to uh, move into our final area, our final topic this morning. You know, one point, one verse that I did want to bring up when we talk about this two-thirds still needing to be cut off, we don't look forward to that event. I don't think that we will be here to witness that event. But one important verse comes to mind that we did overlook is in Zechariah 13, and it's verse 8. And we did read verse 9, but verse 8 is important for the context and important for the root meaning. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third part shall be left therein. Uh, we did read that verse, but the first sentence I want to draw attention to, and it shall come to pass that in all the land, and that's really better rendered from the original Hebrew in that land, meaning not Western Europe or Germany, but in the land of Israel or Palestine, that two-thirds is still going to be cut off. So the topic that we are in and we're finishing with is that you know, Israel has been scattered. And the only power that Scripture identifies that is going to accomplish that is the Gogian Confederacy. And so, with Israel being scattered, we have Jews in the Southlands. We looked at Egypt yesterday. Uh, we'll look a little bit more at Jews in, scattered in other areas. And what's going to happen to the Jews that are scattered in that area? Now, when we say Jews scattering into Moab, which is modern-day Jordan, now, I'm not submitting to you that the Jordanians, 80% of them being Palestinians, will open up their homes and say, come stay with us. And they're going to open up their palaces and be our guests from the face of the spoiler. I think that Tarshish, Britain, and America are in that region. That line of demarcation or that battle line is fluid. That is the holding line which Tarshish and the uh, British lion 
can hold, but they have lost land. They are unable to assist Israel or defend Israel. And I would submit to you that, uh, especially in Egypt, they cry because of their oppressors. That is not a pleasant dwelling or a refuge in any uh, positive sense of the word. That is probably concentr uh, concentration camps, prisoners of war camps, those types of things. I would submit to you the same type of arrangement, much like some of the Japanese were in the United States during World War II. It is that type of outcast or that type of situation, not pleasant at all, and certainly even worse in the case in the land of Egypt. Now in Isaiah chapter 42 of Isaiah, there is a sequence of events that shows that Arabia gives praise before Israel is saved. And this is important, because if we have Christ returning here in Sinai, it is completely logical, and I think scripturally supported amply, that the Arabian peoples in immediate proximity will be the first to feel Yahweh's power manifested in Christ and the saints. Well, Isaiah 42, this chapter is a part of a series starting at chapter 40 in which the main theme is Jesus, the Holy One and Redeemer of Israel, saving Israel in their time of distress. Now in the first part of chapter 42, the redemptive work of his first coming is set out where it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighted. I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light to the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. That's reading from verses 1, skipping to 6 and 7. Now one aspect of prisoners, which we know and has been the subject of this morning, is coming out of the prison house of death, or that of resurrection, from Zechariah 9.11. But another aspect of bringing prisoners out of the prison house is the salvation of the nation of Israel. Israel under the hand of their enemies is described in verse 22 of chapter 42 as, quote, but this is a people robbed and spoiled, which we know that's the thought that Gog coming down wants to uh, see them. What does that middle section say? I couldn't... Yeah, I don't know why this is so dark, but this is, this is the Ishmaelites, the tents of Kedar, Actually, yeah, I have no idea why this is so dark. But I can enlighten it up for you. That's all right. I'll, I'll just explain this here in a moment. Um, this southern region really is the beginning of the southern conquering of the southern part of the Abrahamic land grant. So that is the first to be conquered as Christ and the saints move eastward, then northward to bring Jews out of Egypt, and then they start their march uh, up northward, up around the tip of the Dead Sea and into Jerusalem, and then after that we begin to continue conquering the northern part of the Abrahamic land grant, So, um, and then the cantons are settled. So um, we'll, we'll kind of continue with that in a little bit. So Israel under the hand of their enemies is described in verse 22, but this is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all snared in holes and they are hid in, in the prison house. The deliverance is expressed in these words, Yahweh shall go forth as a mighty man. Again, we have that oneness, multitudinous man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yea, roar. He shall pre prevail against his enemies. 
and I will bring the blind, that is, to open the eyes by a way that they knew not, and I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them, which is reading from verses 13 through 16. Now, the point for giving this detail is to direct attention to verses 9 through 12, describing some events before Yahweh roars forth and leads the blind to safety. Now, taking verse 7, prisoners out of the prison house, as a figure for the resurrection, verse 8 tells us that the time has at last come for Yahweh to make himself known in his holiness. Quote, my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. I would submit in contrast to the Greek and Latin Catholicism, which has done this abomination for centuries. That in verse 9, Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. And what is the first of these new things? Verse 10, Sing unto the Lord a new song and his praise from the end of the earth. Ye that go down to the sea and all that is, that is therein, the isles and the inhabitants thereof. Now, this is possibly a reference to the conversion of Britain and the young lions at this early stage, so that when the bride or the queen is brought to the king out of Psalms 45, the daughter of Tyre is there with a gift of tribute. On verse 11, quote, Let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar doth inhabit. Let the inhabitants of the rock, which is Petra rock or Jordan, Arabia, let them sing, let them shout from the tops of the mountains. Nabioth was the firstborn son of Ishmael, and Kedar was his second son. We are told in Genesis 25, 6 and 18, that Abraham sent Ishmael and his sons by Keturah and their families away into the, quote, east country. These descendants of Abraham are the occupants, occupants of, the, uh, of the extensive region in which we identify today as Saudi Arabia. Now, let me just... Well, just have to bear with the kind of dim picture there, but hopefully it gives us the sense. The other name mentioned in this passage is Arabia Petra, and it's this mountainous region of the Sinai Peninsula, and the region lying beyond the Gulf of uh, Elath and the Dead Sea. So in clear terms, Isaiah tells us that this large region of the south and the Arabs, or the true descendants from Abraham, are brought into subjection to Christ before Israel is delivered. Those that oppose Christ are killed, and there will be plenty of opposition, even of this Arab contingency, to say the least. Christ and the saints will have been in battle when they come up from Basra, from Isaiah 63. But those true Arabs that are not destroyed and subjugate themselves to Christ become obedient and enlightened. They sing praise to Yahweh. And this is not surprising, for they are the true children of Abraham, though not in line in, in terms of the promised seed. And from a military and geographical angle, it is very reasonable that Christ should de first deal with the people nearest to his encampment at Sinai. There is a suggestion of this early obedience of the wilderness people in Psalm 72. And if we would just look at that briefly, we'll continue to get this sense of what's happening. Psalm 72, 
8 through 15 says this, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents, and the kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. Now we know this is a process of conquering, but we get the sense here that the first to submit or be subjugated to Christ's rule are the southern Arabs, the descendants of Ishmael, which would be descendant of Abraham, tents of Kedar, the Midianites, these in the southern Arabian Peninsula, because of the proximity to Sinai and the beginning of that rainbowed angel march, are the first to experience this. We also include in Habakkuk 3, verse 7, where it says, and this is also important to read, and remember, these are the prophets looking to the south as they experience their vision, so they are pointing south from Jerusalem, and in verse 3 it says, God, or Yahweh, is to come from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. And then jumping down to seven, I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. So obviously these peoples are fearful for what is coming forth out of Zion. Now this is the very first detail in the prophecy, and from this we understand that these two peoples are the first to come under the power of Christ. Midian was the son of Abraham by Keturah, and his descendants occupied the northern or the region north of Mount Sinai and around the Atlantic or Eleantic Gulf. So they represent the people nearest to the encampments of the saints in Sinai. Cushion is usually taken as Ethiopia, and no doubt Ethiopia is a region reached by the children of Cush in their migration from Babel. But the Bible identification of Cush leads us to the South Arabia on the eastern side rather than Ethiopia in Africa. We see that from 1 Chronicles 1.8 and Genesis 10.6, which says, And the sons of Ham, Cush, and Mizraim, and Put, or Put, and Canaan, the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah, and Septeca, and the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Although maps vary somewhat in placing or in the placing of these names and peoples, all agree in placing them in South Arabia. Havilah to Shur. Let me see if I've got a better. Yeah, it must be the camera. Havilah is going to be right here. Shur is going to be up here. Wilderness of Tehran is right here above Sinai. Let's see still. This is a little bit better. Here's Wilderness of Sinai, Wilderness of Tehran, Wilderness of Shur. So we go all the way across the Persian Gulf for Havilah, and we kind of get those dimensions. So it is probable that Midian and Cushion in Habakkuk take us to the east of Sinai to Arabia. So back in east of Sinai here, back into Arabia. As most likely the first campaign or first movement from Sinai by the multitudinous march. They, the Christ multitude, would of course attack the peoples who were nearest to their encampment. These are the tents of Cushion and the curtains of Midian, which are afflicted and they're made to tremble. 
This cushion is east of the Tigris and north of the Persian Gulf. The Midianites are the Arabs in the desert who are to bow down before him. So east of the Tigris, north of the Persian Gulf, we have this area that's identified here, even though it's a little bit dim on the screen. Now next let's go to Isaiah 21. And we'll look at 11 through 15. The burden of Duma, he calleth to me out of fear. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, The morning cometh, and also the night. If ye will inquire, inquire ye, return, come. The burden upon Arabia, in the forest in Arabia, shall ye lodge or dwell, O ye traveling companies of Dedanum. The inhabitants of the land of Pima brought water to him that was thirsty. They prevented with their bread him that fled. For they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, and from the bent bow, and from the grievousness of war. Now the 21st chapter of Isaiah is not easy to understand. The passage that we've just quoted follows a description of the fall of Babylon from verses 1 through 10. And this was... In the first place, the work of Cyrus, the Persian, and the whirlwinds of the south sweeping through. In verse 1, which was a figure for those from Elam coming against Babylon. But in the latter day overthrow of Babylon, the great, um, or excuse me, the latter day overthrow of Babylon the great, Christ and the saints will be that whirlwind of the south entering into Israel and overthrowing the Babylonian image on the mountains of Israel in their onward career up to destroy the European Babylon, i.e. the harlot and riding the beast. Now as to verses 11 through 15, we have no biblical knowledge of they're having a past fulfillment, which is important because again it points us forward, and it is probable that they belong to the future. In addition to Arabia and Seir, we have, we have identified here Duma and Tima or Teman from Habakkuk, who are also sons of Ishmael, and Dedan a son of Keturah. All the sons of Abraham, apart from Isaac, went into the southeast country. And this is interesting. The burden of Arabia describes a time when the desert has been changed into a forest, a miraculous transformation, and nomads are now dwelling in it. They are subject to Christ and are willing to care for the outcast Jews, supplying them with bread and water. As we have said, nothing has occurred in the past that would resemble this. And it indicates that these south lands of Arabia have to obey the word of God at a time when Israel is still in distress or still in her scattered state. The call to those in Arabia to care for the outcasts from the land of Judah, quote, the inhabitants of the land of Pima did meet the fugitives with their bread. This is similar to the latter-day Moab or the call for latter-day Moab, which would be Jordan area today to hide the outcast from the face of the spoiler from Isaiah 16. And this indicates Christ's influence at a time, or at this time, covers a wide area. Now looking back to the ministry of the prophets by Roberts and C.C. Walker, we read this regarding chapter 21. There are reasons for thinking that a latter-day application of this burden upon Arabia is intended Whatever fulfillment it may have found in the past, and that it's coupling with, quote, the burden of Duma, is not undersigned. The revised version tells us in the margin that, quote, according to ancient versions, we may read, 
Quote, in the forest at evening shall ye dwell, O ye traveling company of Dedanites. Also, the margin suggests that the succeeding words may be construed as an admonition instead of a historical record which says, unto him or unto the Jews that is thirsty, as an admonishment, bring him water, ye inhabitants of Tema, meet the fugitives with bread, as a command or an admonishment to do this. The difference between Arabia and evening is wide enough in English, but it's not so in Hebrew. The word Arab stands for both, Arabia and evening. So we have only to ask, as uh, Walker and Roberts continue, have the prophets anything else to say about Dedanites and Temanites at evening, helping the fugitives who flee into their country from the grievousness of war? The answer is yes. Isaiah had previously spoken of evening tide trouble and the scattering of Israel's spoilers like thistledown, quote, before the morning, back in Isaiah 17:14. At evening, also that is, just before the dawn of Zion's glad morning, Ezekiel speaks of the crisis and says that Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish are an Arabian coalition which interpose in Israel in Israelitish affairs against Gog and his northern confederacy, who overrun the land. A British confederacy of the south opposes a Russian confederacy of the north at this great crisis, and the latter, that is Gog, prevails to the taking of Jerusalem and the scattering of the Zionist colonies then well-rooted in the land. We have already drawn attention to what others have previously established namely that Edom and Moab of the latter days represent the British power at the crisis of Christ's revelation to Israel. In Isaiah 16, Yahweh exhorts Moab, in the time when the throne of David is to be reestablished in righteousness, to let his outcasts dwell with him. So Britain, the natural protector of the Jews, and for every political reason, the natural enemy of Russia, in the same way will do this, not for any love of Israel or for Jews, or of Israel in the highest sense, but political necessities which know no law and which are controlled by only Yahweh himself and the Elohim. A strong enemy will drive Britain out of Egypt into the Arabian country south of Jerusalem, Daniel 11, 40-43, and Jewish fugitives will naturally take the host of their protector. But Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish do not save Israel or themselves. Were it not for the supernatural intervention of divine power, which is most emphatically announced in Ezekiel 38, a fifth universal empire would arise to dominate the earth, namely the Russian Colossus. But Christ and the saints come into the inheritance of this crisis, and the kingdoms of men are soon broken to pieces together, as Daniel saw in chapter 2. The glory of Kedar falls for the last time, and he is transformed and adopted with all other hirelings, which is a noticeable difference into an obedient member of the family of nations that will be joined to the Lord in that day. So brothers and sisters, we're begging a series of questions. The first question that we've addressed earlier in the week is, what is the cause of the peace and safety? Before that we said, you know, what I would submit to you is the proper place for Ezekiel 37 which doesn't change our understanding of the restoration and this progress of Zionism. 
We beg the question is, is if Israel is scattered and Gog in his divine role is supposed to do that, then therefore what? Israel has been scattered out of their land, they've been scattered out of Jerusalem, and so where do we find them if the tenants of Israel have been scattered? How does that fit? We must make it fit. And these are all the scriptures that allow for this sequence to fit. And I would submit to you this is the original understanding of our prophetic view throughout our community. Now let's continue. The tribute of Arabia, as of all countries, the gold, the spices, and the flocks are rendered joyfully to the greater than Solomon in his capital in Jerusalem. The joy of the whole, the joy of the whole earth. And let's just look at Isaiah 60, 6 through 7. The multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian, and Eth and Ephah, all they from Sheba shall come, they shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord, and the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together unto thee, the rams of Nabioth shall, be, shall minister unto thee, and they shall come up with acceptance on mine altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Now rivers in the desert. What is provided or how were the Jews provided for in their scattering? This is a great time of distress. This is the time of Jacob's trouble. All of their hope, which they had in their own economy, their own military might, their own Zionistic cause, has been totally destroyed. So associated with the, this work of Christ in the South and Arabia, this initial movement out of Sinai, there is a miraculous happening that is a fitting introduction of Christ to the world. The return of Christ to the earth means the return of miracle to the earth after many, many centuries of Yahweh hiding his face. We may think of the overthrow of the Gogian host in the land as the first manifestation of divine power, his revealing when he comes in to Jerusalem, which is the proper place for the Matthew 24. You shall see him come in uh, with clouds and with angels. But the first miracle is an act of goodness and blessing, the providing of water in the desert for the outcast Jews in their hour of great distress. Isaiah 41, this miracle is brought to our notice in this chapter. The early part of the chapter asserts the abiding care of Yahweh for his people. In reading verses 13 through 14, quote, For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Fear not, thou worm Jacob, and ye men of Israel. Then skipping down to 17 through 20, we read, When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue fails for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open the rivers in the high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the shittah tree, the myrtle, and the oil tree. And I will set in the desert the fir tree and the pine and the box tree together that they may see and know and consider and understand together. And that phrase is the conversion of Israel to recognize who Yahweh is and who Jesus is. The truth about Jesus. Not a Messiah that hasn't come to the earth yet, but the second advent of Jesus the Christ. That is the process that they may know, they may see, that they may consider, and then understand. 
And then you can imagine how they will mourn, as it says in Zechariah. For then they will realize that this is the Jesus that was crucified. And that is the purpose for building up Israel again, never to be, never to be destroyed again. Here is something grand, reminding, reminding one of the glories of the original creative work of the angels in the very beginning in creation. But this time is, it is performed by Christ and the saints, acting as the Yahweh name, or God manifestation, firstly to provide water for his distressed people fleeing from the land of Israel. Now jump to Isaiah 43, looking at verses 18 to 21. In this chapter, water in the desert, or this theme is repeated. Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the former things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. So right there he's saying, the wonderful miracles that have been done in the past, don't remember them, for I'm going to do something even more magnificent or greater in the future. Remember not the former things. Now it shall spring forth, and shall ye not know it. I will even make a way in the wilderness. And I think this way is literal and, of course, symbolic of the way of the truth and life, the way of Christ, but also a physical way as he is bringing them back in the wake of the rainbowed angel march. And rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. And, of course, I'm addressing the literal sustenance of water but we can't take away from the symbolic and the figurative meaning of water as in the word of Yahweh. This people have I formed for myself, they shall show forth my praise. So the idea is repeated in this chapter, which is an assurance that it will come to pass. Remember that with Joseph, in terms of his dreams, he said repetition was an assurance from Yahweh, Genesis 41.32. The happening is so marvelous and on such a scale that it is intended to become a world wonder and inescapable evidence or witness of the power of the Yahweh name in the earth. It is so remarkable that it is regarded as replacing past wonders. Quote, remember ye not the former things, behold I do a new thing. In the first quotation from Isaiah 41, men are caused to see, to know and consider and understand together. Well, what is it that they are to so thoroughly examine and appreciate that the hand of Yahweh hath done this and the Holy One of Israel hath created it. It is something so vast and wonderful it is completely beyond the powers of men. It is a vindication of the might of the God of Israel and it is a blessing to mankind. What a wonderful first miracle when Christ first returns to the earth. The seven trees named are all good trees. They're trees of usefulness and pleasure. In chapter 55, Isaiah returns to the matter and contrasts the good, excuse me, with the evil. Quote, For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn comes up the fir tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to Yahweh for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This wonderful happening is so impressive that it remains as an everlasting sign to prove that the God of Israel is in the earth. Now to Isaiah 30, verses 25. When exactly does this marvel take place? Well, verse 25 of Isaiah 30 gives us a clue. And there shall be upon every high mountain and every high hill rivers and streams of water in the day of great slaughter. 
When the towers fall, when is that day? One, it happens in the great day of slaughter. And two, the other point here is that when the towers fall, this is when the rivers and streams of waters burst forth. So the time can be identified from the detail of events when Christ goes forth against the enemy encamped at Jerusalem. Zechariah 14 says the earthquake occurs when its feet stand upon the mountain of Olives. This is when the towers fall, or as Ezekiel 38:20 says, every wall shall fall to the ground. Again, same prophecies being talked about by all these different prophets. It is a time of gigantic earth movement. The mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places fall. The land around Jerusalem shall be lifted up. The Mount of Olives shall be cleft in two to provide a great valley and living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem. Zechariah 14, 4-8. The culminating event after Christ and the saints have defeated Gog and freed the city of Jerusalem begins the transformation of the region for the enlargement of the boundaries of Israel when they are settled in their cantons stretching across the Sinai Peninsula and part of Arabia. Now to Psalm 46. And I would encourage you, as we're moving very quickly here, to go back and read these chapters individually just to ponder on them. Because it doesn't do it justice just to bullet out the phrases. But that's all the justice we have for the last 15 minutes. In this symbolic language, natural catastrophes are mixed with the raging enemies of Israel. Israel finds refuge in Yahweh of hosts in the city of God. The saints are the hosts of Yahweh at this time. The previous psalm, Psalm 45, has detailed their coming into being. In that chapter, which is 45, the king is about to ride forth against his enemies. The queen is at his right hand. The people of Tyre are there with the gift of of tribute. Then 46 follows when Israel is saved and her king, or by her king, and his immortal princes. The sequence between 45 and 46 is a useful confirmation that the saints are with Christ as this rainbowed angel, uh, rainbowed angel march is happening. They are participating in this event, in this march. And they are with Christ as he comes to deliver the scattered Jews in their time of distress. Breathe. Back to Habakkuk 3. Looking at verses 9 through 10. Thy bow was made quite naked, according to the oath of the tribes, even thy word, Selah. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the waters passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. And the fullest account of this idea is in Isaiah chapter 35. My poor flowers aren't quite bright enough. In this chapter, Isaiah 35, there is a picture like that that we've seen in Isaiah 41 and 43. It's of the desert blossoming, waters breaking out, breaking forth to succor the needy in their distress. And it's important to look at the entire chapter. And for constraints of time, I'm just going to have to hit the high points. But the entire chapter is worth our attention in regards to this matter, this time frame 
in this particular situation. Here the loving kindness of Yahweh is ever apparent in thus caring for his people in the hour of great distress. In giving them water in the desert and in making out a highway on which there will be divine protection for the Israelites traveling Zionward. It will be like the way, capitalized, that existed in the olden days in Israel. Thou shalt separate three cities for thee in the midst of the land. Thou shalt prepare thee a way and divide the coast of thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee to inherit into three parts, that every slayer may flee thither. Deuteronomy 19.2-4 There was this way marked out for the manslayer to use as he fled to a city of refuge. Chapter 35 should be read in context with chapter 34. The second half of chapter 34 is in contrast with chapter 35 and describes the utter destruction of the land of Edom, this having been fulfilled through many centuries. And the land thereof shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night or day. The smoke thereof shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. Now this extreme language does not mean Edom will continue a barren wilderness unendingly, the meaning can only be understood by putting alongside similar language about the desolation of the land of Israel in past centuries. The whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning, that it is not sown, nor beareth, nor any grass groweth therein, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim. Deuteronomy 29:23. As the land of Israel is to be restored, so is the land of Edom. The spirit of Edom, that of the kingdoms of mes, uh, men and the kingdoms of the flesh, and that which will be borne out by Gog and his invading confederacy, will be utterly destroyed. As the land of Israel is to be restored, restored so is the land of Edom. The desolate land of Edom in chapter 34 is part of the wilderness that blossoms as the rose in chapter 35. We ought to read it straight from the end of 34 to 35 to maintain the sequence here. As the one chapter is literal, so is the other, despite the degree of figure and hyperbole used. In Isaiah 35, like Psalm 46, in its encouragement and comfort to the fearful, this is its purpose. Verse 4 says, God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense and save you. This again links 35 with 34, for the coming with vengeance is the central idea of the first half of Isaiah 34. It is this vengeance that overthrows the enemy at Basra in Edom. For it is the day of Yahweh's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. So when you put together these two chapters, we have the overthrow of the enemy at Basra, which would be the vanguard forces of the Gilgian Confederacy. We'll explain that in a moment here, part of, the, part of a series of battles culminating in the complete destruction of Gog on the mountains of Israel and in Jerusalem. We have water springing up in the desert, the desert blooming as the rose, and there will be a way for the redeemed to return to Zion with joy. The context shows that the redeemed in the first place are the nation of Israel in dire distress. Yahweh is the redeemer, they are redeemed which if we have read earlier, Fear not, thou worm Jacob, and ye men of Israel, I will help thee, saith Yahweh, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, I will open rivers in high places. 
The exiles, as they return from far countries, will later use the same highway. So our final point. We focus on the key areas that have been forks in the road in our community. Multiple views will not stand and they only serve as a barrier to the confusion that unfortunately is attached to prophecy. This conflicts, this conflicts, this interpretation conflicts with this one. I'm going to set that aside, leave it in a state of confusion, and go on to other aspects of the gospel. We cannot profiteer from current events, and this is difficult. An analogy that was brought to me is that we cannot put, I believe this came from Brother Adam Kuyper, is we can't put current events on top of the Bible. We have to make sure that the Bible is the framework, and if current events fit that framework, then we can take those into consideration. Now, this is difficult. We're not speaking about one's intentions. We can't, uh, we can't speak to the intentions of brethren when you saw 1948, 1967. Those are prophetic events. But the Arab-Israeli wars, as rapid as they were and sensational as they were, were not going to be the confederacy that overthrows Israel and scatters them. That does not square with Scripture. The case in point in these latter days is the reemergence of Russia. You can look at the fall of Russia in the late 80s, certainly through the early 90s, and say, Russia is out of the picture. How can you possibly say that this nation is going to rise again to pose a threat not only to Europe, but a threat down to the Middle East? Of course, that is not the case today, and that is an entirely different study, which we have embarked on personally, and the evidence is overwhelming, not only to the ancient peoples that settled there, descendants of uh, or related to the Amalekites and that their kings were called Gog, where they settled and migrated to, all of the um, historical evidence that relates those ancient peoples to modern-day Russians. And I have a document from Brother Bill Yake, who is, uh, you probably know of. doesn't have children. He's not a very good golfer, but he lives literally in the Library of Congress. And all of those ancient books and sources that we can't get access to, I believe one of the documents that he has sent me is a 9,000-page Word document on validating that Russians are Scythians. So I couldn't begin to fathom to present that to you, <laughs> let alone speak that to you, but I have looked through hundreds of those pages, and I finally stopped and said, yes. There is no question. Gog is Russian. And Brother Thomas identified this, and uh, I believe that emphatically that our identification there is sound, and we can bank on that. Now, the might and the control that Russia is generating through oil and gas, the return to a Soviet-style-run state, a totalitarian-style government, cries from us from the daily headlines. The stranglehold that Russia is beginning to have over Europe is obvious, compelling, and beyond dispute. She is back in Syria with the relocation of her major shipbuilding to the port of Tarsus. She is back in Lebanon with the relocation of her Chechenian army general and with so-called engineers. Her hand is deep in fostering of, or deep in the fostering of anti-West, anti-Israel, Islamic terrorism. In fact, I would submit to you she is the author of terrorism 
in terms of sponsoring it and organizing it. A boss from the PLO was trained in Moscow by the KGB, Arafat before that. So you look at the tentacles, and that is a whole other study on its own. For hand is evident in the behind-the-scenes fostering of 1967 and 1973, the Arab-Israeli wars. So we need, therefore, to be cautious in our impatient, which is human, reactionary tendencies as to what Yahweh has clearly revealed what he is going to do. We've also identified the manner and the state which the Jews have been returning to the land in unbelief, relying upon the strength of her own hand. And as we read from Brother Thomas, there is a partial and primary restoration of Jews before the manifestation, which is to serve as the nucleus, a basis of future operations in the restoration of the rest of the tribes after he has appeared in the kingdom. It is styled as a pre-adventual colonization of Palestine on purely political principles. And the Jewish colonists will return in unbelief of the Messiahship of Jesus and of the truth as it is in him. Of necessity, the Jews must be there for a gog to scatter them. We've identified the, stature and the, the state and the nature of the peace and safety that is to be secured, which entices gog to come down to the land of unwalled villages to take a spoil. It is a peace and safety that is rendered as a confident dwelling by the Jews relying upon the strength of their own hand. It is attributed to them as a shame and a trespass against Yahweh while securing their own peace and safety, for it is godless and absent of Yahweh. And what we've also tried to bring to light is that what are we to do with the verses that we've looked at, such as Isaiah 19, the scattering into Egypt yet again, a second exodus, bringing them across with the tongue of the Egyptian sea, gathering them out, rivers being provided for them, food, even the initial southern Arabs that have to be the first to feel Christ and the saints' power that must submit or be cut off with the sword. And then they are to assist and actually submit and assist the scattered Jews. Gog invades the glorious land like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships and he shall enter into the countries. If we look at... That's a little bit brighter. As we look at the most likely route that he will come down with, I mean, it's, it's a perfect military maneuver through the Bosphorus Straits, down into Egypt. You can seal off the end of the Mediterranean, pretty much. You seal off the Suez Canal, and Britain and Tarshish cannot even get into this region because it is sealed off. Now, if you know it, if you look at the will of Peter the Great, you know you really get an insight into the thinking of Russia, and I would submit to you that you would look that up. But their desire, Russia's desire for a warm water port, has been long throughout their history. If you look at on, the, uh, uh, on a map, Moscow, I believe it's the 30, oh, I forget the, uh, the longitude. Anyway, it's almost directly north of Israel, directly north of Jerusalem. So all these things line up. When the Assyrian shall come into our land, when he shall tread in our palaces, when he shall come within our borders, that's out of Micah 5, when the city shall be taken, which is out of Zechariah, when he shall plant his tabernacles, or the tents of his military chiefs, in the glorious land, on the glorious mountain, that is in Jerusalem, that is in Zion, that is a temporary occupation. Many of the Jews are scattered. A residue will stay in the West Bank, but most likely under oppression. Most will flee from the face of the spoiler, 
Many flee into Egypt and cry because of their oppressors. Some find refuge in Moab or Jordan, where Moab is commanded to be a covert for the outcasts fleeing from the face of the spoiler. Others into the wilderness of Paran in the Sinai Peninsula, and others into the wilderness of Arabia. Other Jews are still seen from Joel 3.6, the children of Jerusalem and of Judah are sold and deported off of their land into the borders of the Grecians. This is the time of terrible affliction, even the time of Jacob's trouble. Judgment has passed. We won't see this. Immortalized, and the immortalized host now with their commander is prepared to advance from Sinai and for the battle of the redemption of Israel. So it's imperative that we understand where Christ returns, which we've tried to bring to light this week. From the south, as you take Deuteronomy 32, Habakkuk 3, Psalm 68, from the south, from Paran, from the holy place to the sanctuary, into Jerusalem. The chariots of Yahweh are 20,000, even thousands of changed ones. This is the cherubim aspect. The march of the rainbow angel commences in the first engaged in those immediate proximity of the Arabs around Sinai. The Christ multitude attacks the people who are nearest to the encampments, the tents of Cushion and the curtains of Midian, which are afflicted. They are made to tremble. Then we look westward for an engagement which humbles and terrifies Egypt and rescues the Jews from their oppressors. And that is these movements as best as we can identify them. A westward movement immediately after Sinai, then a eastward movement, excuse me, an eastward movement, then a westward movement, and then the final northward thrust, picking up Jews out of uh, Moab, Jordan, and then meeting Gog up and around the tip of the Dead Sea in Jerusalem. So finally, brethren, the question that I think should, that should last resonate in our minds is... When does Elijah return? Because if we look here in Malachi 4, 5 through 6, this is the final point that we will close with and leave you with. And I think it's a point that resonates and should animate us in a variety of emotions. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, whether it's Elijah in person, whether it's John the Baptist, or whatever contingency is sent forth from the judgment to begin to affect and to cultivate this one-third in Israel of the Jews before Gog invades begs a resounding question for us. Judgment has already happened for that commission or for that contingency to be dispersed to begin to cultivate that one-third who will listen to either flee because the spoiler is coming, return the heart towards the truth, and that will be quite a time. I don't know how the visible manifestation will take place. I don't know how the leaders in, in Israeli government will respond to however this Elijah contingency is preaching whoever they are going to. But the question that is for us, judgment has already happened or is happening. And our time and our walk is complete. It's done. So that's the urgency that I think that is facing us. So thank you.